As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. I'm so glad to be talking to Eduardo Pagan, a professor of history at Arizona State University. He's also a co-host of History Detectives on PBS and worked on the PBS series American Experience. He is the author of Murder at the Sleepy Lagoon, Zoot Suits, Race, and Riot in Wartime L.A., an absolutely fascinating book. A great pleasure to have you here with me. Thank you. Oh, you're very welcome. Happy to talk to you. So what drove your interest in this notorious series of events culminating in what is commonly known as the Zoot Suit Riots? What what motivated you to write about them? Well, uh, so I guess I should start by... Um, a little bit of just my own background growing up in, in Arizona um, and particularly during the time when uh, Luis Valdez's uh, play Zoot Suit Riot came out and then it, it became a movie after that point. And you know, I think that was really my first introduction to uh, this time and this, this, uh, this phenomenon as well. Um, and uh, I always grew up kind of interested um, in this particular moment for uh, for those of us who grew up in the 1970s, 1980s, uh, Luis Valdez's play and, and subsequent movie um, was really foundational in constructing kind of the history of Mexican-Americans in the, Ameri- in the United States in the post-war period or during the war as well, during World War II. And so, you know, this was always kind of a pivotal moment just growing up. And as it turned out, my mother also grew up in El Paso, Texas, and had her own stories to tell about these uh, these pachucos that she used to see. And she was afraid of as a young girl walking down the streets of El Paso. So, you know, there was always that interest in the back of my mind. But, 
you know, as I studied, as I went on to graduate schools and I studied this period, you know, I had more and more questions about the way that the story was told. Um, there were um, kind of gaps and holes and curiosities and contradictions that prompted me to start to probe a little bit more. And the deeper I, I began to look into the, the primary source material, the more I realized that there was a different story uh, to be told than the one that was represented on stage and screen. And, and this is yeah, this is nothing to knock the work of Luis Valdez at all. Um, it is a dramatic production, and, and, and by nature, uh, they have to craft a story in a particular way. But what became clear to me is that there's a different story, and, and a story that was um, very interesting and very appealing to me as, as someone who was interested in history. And so I started from that perspective, but to be perfectly honest, is as as I dove into the to the sources and began to try to figure out well what's the story what are, you know, what's what's the story the sources tell, I became absolutely convinced that these young people who were uh, they were uh, convicted for the murder of, of Jose Diaz they were innocent I was absolutely convinced of that and that at the end of the day is what fueled me from start to finish in this project a pro, a project I wanted to be able to not only tell their story but demonstrate how they were innocent and how uh, the judicial system ultimately failed them. And so that's really what, what kept me motivated. And still to this day, you know, as, as I talk to people about it, it's to me, I think that's the essence of the story is that these, um, these young people were unfairly singled out and the judicial system did not protect them in the way that it's designed to protect um, the accused. So before we get into the details of the murder and the riot, I'd like to ask you about wartime Los Angeles. What was the general atmosphere of the city in the early 1940s? You know, that's a great question. Um, I guess the first thing that I would say was that this was a, a city that was experiencing tremendous change, economic change, demographic change, and uh, also political change, social change. Um, it was... Uh, because of the war and because of, of uh, the war in um, in the Pacific, uh, the whole coast of Southern California became enormously significant uh, to our military uh, efforts. And because of that, there was a lot of defense industries that, that were at work in Southern California. So that, that had a huge impact. So the economy is changing. Uh, people are migrating out to the West Coast. Of course, you know, if jobs are available and, and, and people are needed to work, especially for national defense, I mean, you have this migration of people. You add to that, this is following the revolution in Mexico of 1910, which was over by 1923 for all practical purposes. Um, and as a result of that, that revolution, uh, significant amounts of refugees fled northward into the United States to escape the violence. Uh, there's one estimate, just to give you an idea of, of how bloody that, that revolution was. There's one estimate uh, that put it at one out of 10 people uh, were killed as a result of the, the, the revolution in Mexico. And so you had a lot of refu refugees coming north into California, uh, into Los Angeles. And even though the, the revolution was over by the 1920s, uh, there still was an appreciable number of refugees that didn't go back. They stayed. Um, and so you've got this rapidly changing a, a city in terms of demographics by the 1940s. You have this massive influx of refugees from the, the revolution in Mexico. You have the great migration coming out of the American South where African Americans were, were leaving the South. They're heading North, but they're also heading out West. 
And then you've got the uh, Dust Bowl uh, migrants, the, the so-called Okies that, uh, that you uh, read about and that you see also in, in um, uh, the Grapes of Wrath uh, being represented there. And so you've got this massive influx of people. Uh, and on top of that, of course, you have uh, um, Japanese Americans who are already living there and uh, white Americans who are making their way out to the West Coast for the same reason why people move out to the West Coast today. Um, so, again, uh, just to answer your question about what is what is Los Angeles like, uh, from my perspective, it's it's a city that's undergoing rapid, rapid change. And and what that means ultimately is that when you've got this city that is expanding enormously, all of your social services are taxed. Um, all of your housing is taxed. You know, they're just there's there's a, a certain element of social chaos that goes along with this rapidly expanding city. And so that's how I would characterize Los Angeles uh, during the 1940s is just a city that's undergoing a, a boom in population, uh, a rapidly changing economy. Because, you know, as, as industries convert over to to try and contribute to the war effort, you know, suddenly you've got factories that are no longer making uh, refrigerators. They're now making bombers or something like that. You know, uh, just just tremendous, tremendous change. And, and so this is a period of tremendous flux. And in itself. Any moment of rapid change uh, produces a certain level of social anxiety. So that all factors into um, how I began to construct the narrative about what happened during this period was there was just there's a, a reasonable degree of social anxiety about the rapid changes that were taking place. In fact, if sorry if I'm droning on, but let me just throw in one other thing as well is that. We also know this, that, you know, because of wartime production and demands on, on uh, uh, the economy to produce armaments and all, support of, all sorts of supporting uh, products as well in the war effort, you had um, parents that are working long hours. And they didn't call them latchkey kids in the 1940s, but this phenomenon, this, this concern that there are young people at home while dad's off fighting the war and mom is, is building bombers, uh, you know, who's watching the kids. And so you have this phenomenon as well. And there was, there's this growing, uh, social discussion about the problem of juvenile delinquency. And it wasn't aimed just at racial minorities, but it was across the board. So this is all part of that social anxiety that comes about as a result of this, this city under rapid, rapid change. Before we get into the details of the night of, of the murder of Jose Diaz, I want to ask you about the boys of 38th Street. They were referred to as a gang during their trial. But as you explain in your book, they weren't necessarily a gang like we perceive gangs to be now. They were a group of kids that lived in the same neighborhood, knew each other, went to the same social functions. But could you talk about them, who they were, the origins of the group? Sure. Uh, so the kids of 38th Street, um, yeah, just to put that in a little bit of context, what was pretty clear to me, you know, I, part of my research is I read, I read all of the, the major newspapers of Los Angeles from, uh, 1940 to, uh, the post-war period up until 1946. And so, you know, it, you get this really interesting view of the past when you read newspapers on a regular basis, right? Um, and one of the things that was obvious to me was that the country had just come off of the prosecution of bootlegging gangs, you know, the, the sort like Al Capone, for example. And so what became apparent to me, the reason I'm, I'm bringing this up is that 
The term gang was not a neutral term in the 1940s. If you were living in the 1940s and you heard someone make reference to the gang, automatically they would think about these gangs like the Al Capone gang, uh, you know, who are serious criminals, right? And so to be using it on this collection of kids who happen to live in the same area was a very, very loaded thing to do, right? And on top of that, you know, you and I live in a period now we've, we've been through, uh, we know what, when you were used the, the word gang, there, there are very clear associations with with lawlessness, with violence, with um, with illicit activities. Um, and so this is not a neutral term in the slightest, this term gang. And so the question then is I was looking at these kids and I was trying to get the heart of who were they? You know, what what was this group? It became clear to me that they just did not fit any of the associations that that people had in the 1940s about what it meant to belong to a gang and certainly what we have today, what it meant to belong to the gang. They just happened to be living next to each other. And these were kids pretty much like all kids. Um, this was a, a mixed racial and ethnic area of town. And so the 38th street neighborhood, you had working class whites, the kind that I'd mentioned before, or Okies who had made their way into Los Angeles in the thirties and forties. You had African-Americans, you had uh, Mexican-Americans. And what's unique about the Mexican-Americans is that, you know, this was the uh, this is the generation of young people whose parents grew up in Mexico, who fled northward to escape the violence and who decided to make their life here in the United States. And so this is that first generation of kids who are growing up American or if they, even if they were born in Mexico, they they had no reference. They were babies when they when their parents came across. And so. Their entire frame of reference was American culture, um, and they were trying to figure out what it meant to be American in this time when, to add to the complexity, this is also a period of, of entrenched racial segregation, uh, both in terms of the laws, uh, the formal laws, but also in terms of social practice. And so, you know, I, I tried to understand what did it mean to grow up as a, as a racial minority uh, during this period of, of uh, pretty entrenched segregation. And so... I guess to answer your question, you know, if I were just to summarize what these kids were, as, as I put out in the book, to the best of my knowledge, these are just kids who happen to grow up in the same neighborhood, and they're all trying to figure out what does it mean to grow up in a period of social anxiety. And uh, it's not just because of, of the rapidly changing environment, but it's also because of the war. You know, part of what I tried to characterize in the war was that, you know, looking back, you know, it's... Uh, you know, from our perspective in 2016, uh, our victory in World War II was a foregone conclusion. But if, again, if you go back and you read the newspapers, um, that wasn't at all clear. In fact, 1943 started off in 1942. In terms of our campaign in Europe, it went badly. We, we suffered a lot of, of, of tremendous losses against uh, a, a nation state, Nazi Germany, that was far more prepared for war. And it wasn't really until 1943 that things began to turn around for the Allied forces. Up to that point, they were kicking our butts. And so, you know, I asked myself, what would it be like to grow up in that environment where you don't know whether you're going to win against Nazi Germany, right? And so that's really what I tried to capture was for these kids, they're trying to negotiate all of these social tensions, all of these worries and these anxieties, you know, all the while going through all the things that most of us go through as we're, we're coming of age, you know, questions about, you know, who, who am I? Where do I belong? 
Uh, how do I fit within this larger complex society and economy? Um, so these kids, they, what kind of helped them navigate all of this was that they were loyal to each other. They, they bonded with each other and, and, you know, I would just say that, I mean, I, if there was one, and I, I do say this in the book, if there's one defining characteristic that stood out to me about who these kids were, is that they were terribly loyal to each other. And that says a lot. They were, they were, their friendship was a, was a true friendship and they, they stuck together and they defended one another. And that plays into then the murder trial, the investigation that went into it, even the way that they're characterized in the press, that, that basic loyalty and friendship that helped them navigate a very complex situation uh, became part of the story. Let's also talk about Jose Diaz before we get into the night of his murder. He was a pretty average kid in 1940s Los Angeles, wasn't he? Yeah, Jose Diaz, you know, from all accounts, and I had the privilege of talking to his younger brother um, and and get a sense of what Jose Diaz was like. Is Jose was a good kid from all accounts. I mean, this is this is the kind of older brother who he would he would watch over his brothers and sisters. I mean, he took care of them. I mean, he really took his role as an older brother seriously. He would bring his salary at home for the family so that they could divide it up and they would have food to eat, right? He's a good kid by all accounts. He, all accounts, he was never involved in, in uh, any problems uh, that we know of. Uh, there's no record on him at all with the police. Uh, he just seems to be, in many ways, just a really, really good kid who happened to be at the wrong place at the wrong time. And, and you know, even with the, the other kids at 38th Street, you know, some of them had arrest records, and some of it has to do with the nature of policing in Los Angeles uh, during this period. Some of it has to do with kids just being kids. You know, I mean, I did some stupid things as a young boy uh, that thankfully bounced in my direction, if you know what I'm saying. I, mean, I, I easily could have been arrested for for some of the idiot things that I did, and I and they weren't even criminal things. They're just, you know, just being a, an idiot teenager, just testing boundaries, right? Uh, so for some of these kids, the ball didn't bounce in the right direction. They got arrested and wound up in jail. Uh, but I wouldn't say, you know, as a whole that they were bad kids. They were just, in many ways, just working class kids trying to figure out their way in, in a very complex environment. Could you explain the events on the evening of August 1st, 1942, that led to the death of Jose Diaz? Yeah, so Jose uh, lived in what was then rural Los Angeles. That's kind of funny is, is you know, when, when I, I've given presentations before, people are always surprised to think of Los Angeles with rural areas. But, you know, Los Angeles today is not the Los Angeles that exists in the 1940s. There are lots of rural areas in L.A. County. Uh, today, for example, if you go out to uh, Montebello, kind of where this, this ranch was, I mean, it's all it's all pretty urban and suburban. But, you know, back in the 1940s, there was a ranch of several. I've forgotten now how many acres of this ranch was. It was a pretty good-sized ranch. And uh, Jose was living on the ranch with his family, and they were, they were ranch hands. Um, and on this ranch were, were a number of other families, many of them Mexican-Americans, some of them uh, Japanese-Americans. I think there was one Chinese uh, family that was living there. And there may have been a, I think there was an, uh, some ethnic whites also living, just working the ranch, right? So it's a pretty good sized ranch. And so on the night of uh, August 1, one of the young ladies growing up 
on the ranch, living in these these very modest homes. It was her birthday. And so this was a celebration with all of the families in the area. And I, when I mean the area, I'm just talking about the ranch now. There was probably about a dozen families living there. They were celebrating her birthday. And um, it was a fairly typical celebration. Uh, there was uh, some live music being played. And it wasn't even popular music. I mean, this is just like old Mexican uh, ranchera music, and Norteño music, right? Um, and there was some dancing going on at, at some point when the when the orchestra leaves. Uh, some of the younger kids, they pull out uh, an old Victrola, which was uh, a radio. They pull it out on the patio and turn it on to a local uh, dance uh, dance station, radio station, and start dancing away. And so, you know, just imagine this environment. It's a social gathering, um, very commun- communal, food everywhere. Uh, you know, it's kind of uh, potluck. Uh, dancing, socialization, lots of beer. A uh, couple of things I want to point out about this uh, relative to the beer. One is that uh, from what Lino told me that Lino, uh, their family, I've forgotten now which denomination they belong to, but they were devout Christians. Uh, it wasn't Baptist, but it was one of the one of the denominations that really discouraged alcohol consumption. So Jose was not a drinker. But we do know from the forensic evidence from the coroner's report that he had a substantial amount of alcohol in his blood uh, when he was uh, when the uh, autopsy was was conducted. So the reason why I bring this up is that I suspect what happened was that because Jose was to report. Now, this is a Saturday night, August 1st, as I recall. He was to report on the following Monday for induction into the uh, U.S. Uh, Army. And uh, I suspect what happened was that a lot of the guests, as a way of kind of wishing him well, probably gave him a beer and probably toasted him. And he decided what the heck, you know, and, uh, and so he starts drinking. And this becomes important because there's a guy who's not used to alcohol, but he's pretty drunk that night. So that becomes a factor in what happens. Now, uh, this party runs all the way to about one o'clock in the morning. So this party was crashed uh, by outsiders about 10 o'clock. Just a group of uninvited kids show up. Often happens at parties, right? They show up. They they want to participate. They want some beer, and the partygoers kick them out. This becomes an an important element. So 1 o'clock in the morning is about the last time anyone sees Jose Diaz alive, and he's drunk by that point, and he leaves the party in the company of two other young men and that's the last he's ever seen alive now this is where the story becomes a lot more complicated that group that had been expelled about 10 o'clock at night they went to another part of the area where the ranch was located and as they were on their way out they passed by a reservoir that was on the ranch that was used as a lover's lane and as it turns out some of the kids from 38th street were there and as this group passes by, uh, there are some words exchanged by some of the kids leaving the party, angry that they've been denied their beer, and some of the 38th Street kids who are at this lover's lane. Well, a fight breaks out between both groups, and uh, some of the kids from 38th Street get beat up pretty badly, and girls as well. They get beat up. So what happens then is that after that fight is over, those kids from 38th Street who get beat up pretty badly, they go straight back to their neighborhood and they gather together their friends. And 
I think what's important to understand is, is that, you know, had this happened, even when I was growing up in Arizona, we would have responded the exact same ways. You don't, you don't beat up on girls, first of all. And you don't, you don't overwhelm people in a fight. This was an unfair fight that happened. Um, and I could go into more detail about what happened, but they go back to 38th Street. They gather their friends together and they return to the Williams Ranch. Now, by that time, this group of, of kids who had beat up the 38th Street kids are known as the Downey, Downey kids or the Downey gang. They'd already left the area. But by the time that the 38th Street kids returned to the ranch, and they're looking for the Downey kids um, who are long gone by this time. It's about one o'clock in the morning and they hear music off in the distance. And they can see some lights going on. So they decide to go and investigate. And so now this large group of kids from 38th Street and, and surrounding neighborhoods, just whoever they could grab together, they, they show up at the party and they demand to know what happened to you know, these kids that, that had beat them up. And of course, the party goes have no idea what they're talking about. But the 38th Street kids, they come primed for a fight. And one thing leads to another. I wasn't exactly sure what happened. And we couldn't quite piece it together from the evidence. But um, a fight breaks out then among the party goers and the 38th Street kids. And it's described as a riot from some of the documents. The riot or the, the fight lasts, what, five to ten minutes? Glasses broken in some of the houses. Some of the cars are, are their tires are punctured. Uh, uh, there's fighting between men and women uh, on both both grounds. And then the 30 Street kids leave. Someone shouts out, "The cops are coming!" And the 30 Street kids leave. So it's in the aftermath of the fight where the party goers are trying to figure out who's hurt, who's on the ground. That's when they discovered the body of Jose Diaz lying on the ground. And he'd been stabbed by that point a couple times and he was unconscious. Uh, some of the reports indicate that he could, he was moaning and he, he may have been answered to been, he may have been able to answer some, some basic questions, but he was for all practical purposes unconscious. Someone runs out to, to get a telephone and they, they call an ambulance and, and Jose is then taken to the uh, county, County Hospital, General Hospital, and he dies uh, by four o'clock in that morning. And, and to our knowledge, or to my knowledge, uh, he never regained consciousness, so he could never identify what happened. I mean, I, I can again, I can go into more detail about what I think happened that night, but that's that's in a nutshell what happened on that fateful night. Was that there were fights between various groups, and when all the dust settled, Jose is found mortally wounded on the ground. Well, you've piqued my interest now. <laughs> if you wouldn't mind, could you tell us your theory on what actually happened to him? Well, I, okay, so I'll tell you then how the Los Angeles law enforcement pursued that chain of events. And for them, it was pretty black and white. Jose Diaz was alive before the 38th Street kids arrived. After they left, he's found mortally wounded. Therefore, they were the ones who attacked Jose Diaz. That was their thinking. And so the whole investigation at the murder trial uh, kind of went from that point forward. As I pieced together the evidence, and there was lots of testimony, uh, over 6,000 pages of court transcripts of testimony. I went through uh, testimony by testimony to try and figure out who was where at one time. I wanted to know who hit whom, 
at what time, what did I hit him with, what were the results, and so I pieced it all together. And it became pretty clear to me is that I pieced together this timeline based upon the testimonies of, of 30 straight kids. They were never at the location where Jose was found during the fight. They were never there. And so what I believed happened, and this is based on the forensic evidence, was that you recall that he was last seen leaving the party in the company of two men. When he was discovered, his pockets had been turned inside out, and he had been beat up pretty substantially and stabbed a couple times. I believe the evidence suggests that he was mugged. And the reason why I say that is that there is some evidence that he'd been paid that day uh, where he was working. So he may have had his wages in his pocket. But on top of that, it's a it's a fairly common Mexican tradition that when someone is going away is that you want to slip them a, a few dollars as, a, as just a way of wishing them well. You slip them a few dollars. It's entirely possible that at this party, even though they were celebrating the birthday party of one of the, the kids that lived in, in the area, that the neighbors were just slipping him a little a $5 bill or a $10 bill or something like that. It's entirely possible that he had money that had been given to him from uh, well-wishers. That would explain why his pockets were turned inside out. Somebody was going through his pockets trying to find whatever was in his pockets. It had to have been money. That's what I believe. And again, going back to the coroner's report and based on the forensic evidence, it's clear that he put up a pretty stiff fight. His knuckles were skinned. So he struck back, uh, probably in self-defense. He may have been trying to defend uh, himself uh, or just defend himself from being robbed. Uh, but eventually he was also stabbed in the abdomen and also in the chest, of, if I recall. I'd have to go back and look at the evidence again. But in other words, he, he put up a very stiff, stiff fight. In fact, I do remember this from the, uh, the coroner's report that, you know, typically uh, coroners can trace uh, the point of impact on the brain when you have cerebral hemorrhage. They can point it, they can trace the bleeding back to the point of impact. For Jose, Jose, they were unable to trace the point of bleeding because he had been hit so hard and so many times. In fact, the coroner said it, it, he looked like he had been in a, in a prize fight. And he had gone the full distance, right? So in other words, he, he put up a real stiff fight. So the question is like, well, why was somebody fighting him so hard? And I believe he was mugged. And I believe that he was likely mugged by the two young men that he had left the party with when he was last seen alive. And interestingly enough, even though the uh, law enforcement of Los Angeles even though they had that information, they never questioned those two kids. They never brought them in uh, because they followed a different line of thinking, a different line of analysis in, in what happened to Jose Diaz. So my theory is, is, is that he was the victim of a mugging um, and that he was discovered after the, thir- the 38th Street kids left. But they were they were never at the same place where his body was. And there's just no evidence. In fact, I think the evidence is clear is that they were just they were not there at the, at the same time and same place, if that makes sense. Yes, everything that you've said makes complete sense. We will be back after a brief break. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. 
On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast. And we have returned. So there are 22 boys from the 38th Street group that are charged in the murder of Jose Diaz. Let's talk about the trial. These boys end up with a pretty interesting collection of defense attorneys, don't they? Yeah, they do. And this becomes uh, another factor in how how the events uh, evolved from there. They had a collection of defense attorneys um, that range in experience and expertise and even just basic training. The best way to explain this is that the boys, to begin with, were not all represented by one attorney. And the attorneys that they were represented by never saw themselves as a team, and they never saw their purpose as a united purpose. They were hired by various sets of kids who were accused. And so their objective was to get their client off. But whatever happened to another uh, another of these young people that have been accused, it wasn't their business, right? And so this is important because this was not a, a team of defense attorneys who pulled their resources together and, and tried to figure out, you know, um, um, how to best defend the group. They were never defending the group. They were defending their own discrete clients. And so – there are times that they clash with each other openly in court. They bickered with each other uh, in court. They bickered with each other outside of court. And so they're working at cross purposes with each other. So to begin with, their defense, their collective defense was a shambles. Uh, and, it, and it was because these attorneys never saw themselves as a team. 
and they never approached the defense of the young of the young people as a team effort. And and sometimes they undermined one another. And and I go into some detail as is I, I kind of get it. There was one public defender who had a lot of experience, and some of these other attorneys had no experience. And I could I could well imagine these very experienced uh, uh, public defenders kind of rolling their eyes at, oh my gosh, I have to work with this guy. You know, I can't believe he asked that kind of question. One of them was a was a, a female attorney um, who was a former actress, and it's kind of clear that some of her fellow uh, defense attorneys. They didn't appreciate how how outspoken she was. They didn't appreciate the fact that she, at times, took the lead. Uh, She didn't appreciate the fact, or they didn't appreciate the fact that she spoke to their clients, right? And so there's all these dynamics going on in this, quote-unquote, defense team that was not a team. And they just, they really undermined undermined each each efforts, uh, each other's efforts. The boys on trial, despite the lack of evidence faced an uphill battle. You write that the jury was irritated by their youthfulness in the courtroom, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, the question became, in my mind, and it's it's still a question today, there was never a murder weapon produced. There was never an eyewitness that said, I saw all of these kids beating up Jose Diaz. Uh, Nothing even close, right? So no murder weapon, no eyewitness, Nothing, absolutely nothing. And so the question is, how do these kids become convicted given the remarkable lack of evidence? Well, you know, kind of the classic explanation in the scholarship is that it was race. And I really try and nuance that. You you can't deny that race was a factor in this. I mean, this is the age of entrenched segregation after all. So you can't deny that race uh, was entirely absent from this. But it was there in very complicated ways. And in, in many ways, the kids did not help themselves. They knew they were innocent. And I think that knowledge, that, that confidence really undermined their approach. They did not appreciate the effect of their goofing around in court. Uh, they're teasing each other. They're poking each other, trying to make each other laugh. They're imitating uh, some of the, their own defense attorneys, some of their odd quirks and things like that behind their back. The jury saw all of this. And so you have to understand as well that, you know, and this becomes a factor in, in, in the, the case ultimately, because there were so many defendants, they couldn't sit with their attorney at the defense table. And there were so many defense attorneys, you know, they all had to kind of crowd around this defense table. So what the, what the judge did is he said, all right, defense attorneys, you crowd around the table as the defense table as best you can. And so we're going to put all the defendants on one side of the courtroom opposite of where the jury was sitting. And so the jury can look right across the, cl- the courtroom and watch these kids for three months. They can watch these kids. And, and look, I can't blame them. Okay. I would have been as flippant myself at that age. If you've ever sat through court proceedings, you know, it can be very tedious. And I, I, I can well imagine. In fact, I know this happened because of, of some of the uh, descriptions from, from some of the, the folks in the audience uh, these kids just got bored and they started to try and make each other, make each other laugh and embarrass one another. And so the, the jury's watching us the whole time that these kids are flippant from their perspective, right? These kids are flippant. Um, they are uh, delinquent in some fashion, right? Good, well-behaved kids wouldn't be doing this, right? They would be respecting the proceedings. And then you add to this the fact that they weren't allowed to clean up at all. 
during the trial. They weren't allowed to get their haircuts. They weren't allowed to uh, launder their clothes from what, what I understand. Uh, this was standard procedure. Uh, it wasn't simply because uh, many of them were Mexican Americans. It was standard procedure. And so over three months time, some of these kids are starting to look pretty shabby. So you either you kind of pull this all together and this jury is just watching them the entire time. Uh, and this becomes, I think, a role into why that this jury found them guilty despite the lack of evidence. That's the closest I could come to try and explain this very complicated question. I mean, to this day, this, this is a mystery that, that in my mind, how do you convict someone given the lack of evidence? And this had to have factored in there, but I, I don't know if that was a sole thing because of course all the, um, all the jurors have passed on. Uh, to my knowledge, none of them left behind any kind of journal or interview about what they saw and what they felt and how they understood the, the evidence. And so I'm, I'm trying to reconstruct uh, the, the evidence without ever having the chance to talk to these jurors and to understand what they saw as a very compelling argument. Right. Uh, so that's the best that I can I can account for why they account. They, they uh, convicted these kids based on nothing, ultimately, other than their own inappropriate behavior in the cl- in the courtroom. So what were the, the sentences for these boys and what was their ultimate fate? You know, the sentences really ranged. Uh, some of the some of the boys um, got life in prison. Uh, some of the boys uh, were sent to work camps. Uh, some of them were sent to juvenile uh, detention facilities based upon their age. And here's what's interesting as well is that a handful of boys and I'd have to go back and, and check. I You'd be surprised how much you forget in a, in a decade's time. But some of the boys, if I remember right, there were four of the boys actually managed to get their their case heard separately. And those four boys, based on the same evidence, they were all acquitted. Right. So the, all of it. So if you look at it collectively, some were acquitted. Some got fairly light sentences uh, being sent to juvenile uh, detention facilities some more uh, moderate sentences uh, being sent to work camps, and then some were, were extreme sentences uh, being sent, uh, being convicted for life, and they were sent to San Quentin. So it, it really ranged across the board. Some of the kids were able to kind of say, hey, look, I, I, I did nothing. I just happened to be along uh, with the rest of my friends. I never hit anybody, and there was not a shred of evidence to actually link them, and some of them actually were able to get lighter sentences. Uh, those who got the heavier sentences, there were multiple testimonies that said, yeah, I saw them fighting and swinging beer bottles and, and you know, using sticks as clubs and things like that. So oh, ultimately, uh, you asked ultimately, I guess you, you want me to go into the acquittal uh, or the, the the retrial? Yeah, if you wouldn't mind, and especially the two boys that were committed to life sentences, what happened to them? Yeah, well, that's an interesting question about the eventual fate, because um, I kind of uh, look at it both in the short term and the long term. So short term, I really wanted to sing the praises and try to sing the praises of this group of activists uh, across the spectrum. Uh, they weren't uh, from one political um, ideology. It was across the spectrum from very conservative to very progressive who were convinced that these kids just did not get a fair trial at all. And and it was because of this committed group of activists, they succeeded in getting a retrial. What that meant, though, was that for those that were in San Quentin, they uh, spent two years in jail. Now, you know, we can stand back from our vantage point and say, well, it was only two years, you know, and they're were, they were eventually uh, their, their sentence was thrown out. 
the state uh, did not want to retry, and so they were they were free after that point. Truth of the matter is, two years uh, among hardened criminals, um, that's a long time. That's a long time uh, to lose your youth, basically, uh, in prison, behind bars, with hardened criminals. And so in the short term, um, their sentences were reversed. Uh, the state chose not to re-prosecute, and the kids were let go. They were, they were, uh, they were set free from San, San Quentin. But the long-term impact, they picked up some habits in San Quentin, which they didn't have before. For example, uh, some of them were, they picked up heroin. Uh, they got uh, hooked on heroin, heroin, which then set its own sequence of, of choices and, and events into the lives of these young people. Uh, Henry Labus, for example, who was accused of being the uh, so-called uh, gang leader, Henry picked up uh, heroin abuse in prison, never kicked it, and died of an overdose uh, at a fairly young age. So, you know, on the one hand, we can really champion the fact that they were set free and ultimately uh, justice uh, was done in their lives. You know, I really raised the question at what cost, really, at what cost? And at least in Henry's case, it was fatal. Uh, if you look at it from a long term, right, I mean, in, in terms of the cost of uh, their having been pulled into this uh, this terrible sequence of events. So let's shift to the second part of this set of events. But before we get into the specifics, we need to understand the, the clothing that caused this massive riot just months after the murder of, of Jose Diaz. You pose the question in your book, how did the zoot suit come to be a symbol of social danger? What is a zoot suit, and what were some of the other fashions that set Mexican-American kids apart during the 1940s? Well, that's a, that's a very good question, and, and uh, again, I'm afraid I have to give you a long answer. I'll try and keep it short. But um, so, you know, today, I think if you invoke the term zoot suit, most people have this singular idea about what a zoot suit was, and it's basically... It's almost like, you know, for men, it's like taking a, a suit coat, the length of an overcoat. So in other words, it comes down to your knees, but tailoring pretty, pretty closely to your body, at least in the upper part. And then the pants themselves were, um, you know, if you remember MC Hammer's, um, what did they call those uh, pants in the 1980s MC Hammer wore? I, I don't remember now, but anyway, fairly loose pants, pretty, pretty flowing very large pleats but you know when it came down to the ankle they were they were cut they were uh, sewn very tightly around the ankle and so it produced a, a very interesting effect um kind of in general that's the zoot suit look now the reason why i say it's a more complicated picture is that you know of the 30 straight kids most of them didn't wear a zoot suit to begin with it was a very expensive fashion you couldn't just go to a store and and, and pick one up off the rack like we can today right you can go online and order yourself a zoot suit um they were mostly tailor-made and so most kids couldn't afford to do that and so most of the 30th street kids actually did not wear a zoot suit in fact you know, most kids in los angeles didn't wear the complete outfit um they may have had the pants uh, but that was it so but the fashion itself was associated with jazz culture and jazz culture you know again going back to the time when uh segregation was was pretty defined you know today we're so used to our uh our cultural icons 
and sports icons, for example, being African American, and I, I think most people don't even think about it. Um, are even the, the the musical forms we listen to, uh, hip hop, rock, all of those have have direct, uh, even jazz itself have have direct um, uh, origins in African American cultures in the United States. But if you go back to the 1940s and you ask yourself, what are kids listening to on the radio? You know, they're listening to like Bing Crosby. And, and, and Patty Page and uh, even Frank Sinatra. I mean, in other words, this is a totally different musical aesthetic, totally different style. And jazz music was known as race music. It was underground music in the 1940s. This wasn't the music that polite people listened to. This was scandalous music. This is a music that was played in uh, houses of prostitution. Uh, you, you understand what I'm saying? And so jazz itself as, as, a, as a musical expression, uh, it already had these subversive connotations to begin with in the 1940s. And jazz was more than just the sound. It was it was the language and it was fashion. In fact, it was rather interesting is that so much of our slang today, just a word like cool, for example, or to refer to a young woman as a chick. You know, a lot of these terms, they, they come straight from jazz language. Um, and so just to give you a sense of when we're talking about jazz uh, from 1920s, 1930s, 1940s, it's more than just the sound. It's a way of life. It involves fashion. It involves attitude. It involves language. It involves dance. Right. Here's another thing as well. It's interesting as you look back at, at pictures. What are young people? How are they dancing in the 1940s? Well, polite young people, they're dancing the waltz and they're dancing the foxtrot. But kids who are fascinated with jazz, they're dancing the swing. And, you know, today we might look at this and go, you know, my grandparents danced to the swing. What's so scandalous about this? But again, you have to understand that back in the day, in order to dance the swing, you can't dance the swing with a long dress. And so jazz uh, fans, young women, had shorter skirts. Now, again, I mean, everything's in context. You know, today we look at the skirts that, that uh, young women are wearing in the 1940s, and, you know, they come to just above the knee. I and mean, it's terribly conservative from our perspective. But back then, to be having a, your hemline above the knee was highly sexualized. This isn't what appropriate people did, right? And so what I'm trying to paint for you is this, is this subculture, this youth street culture that's pushing against all the norms of what is socially appropriate in the way that young people dressed and the way that they display their bodies and the way that they move their bodies into this to the music they listen to the, the the beat is fast the horns are acting like percussions i mean this is the stuff that makes you want to get up and move and you're not just doing the the waltz you're doing the you're doing the swing and, you know, to add to the scandal, um, you know, we've all seen swing. Part of the swing is you're, you're tossing your partner around. Again, if you're wearing a dress, you know, you're showing leg, you're showing your underwear, you know, as you're, as you're swinging around. This is highly sexualized and this is terribly, terribly scandalous for kind of mainstream society, the 1940s. And so this is all a piece, right? This is all a piece to kind of understand why the zoot suit had such negative connotations. It was a symbol for a street culture, a youth culture that was subversive. 
in the same ways. Now, I don't, I don't know your age, but if, if, if you were around when hip hop first hit the mainstream, well, I mean, I was around and I remember the way that, that adults flipped out. A lot of people don't, uh, or young people today, at least my, my college students, they weren't around when this happened, but I remember. I was definitely when, around. <laughs> okay. So there were congressional hearings. I don't know if you remember this. There were congressional hearings. Uh, Chipper Gore, the vice president's wife, Al Gore's wife, uh, led this movement to put uh, ratings on CDs because they had offensive language. And what they were targeting was hip hop, right? And so, I mean, there was this huge pushback from mainstream culture, from parents, when hip hop first began to hit the mainstream. And there was this reaction like, like Western civilization is going down, they're going to hell in a handbasket, right? The reason why I bring this up is because that's exactly how people reacted to jazz in the 1940s, the exact same way. They looked at this, this scandalous youth culture that you could identify by their clothing and by the music they listened to, and they thought, they thought that the Western civilization was collapsing around them. They really had that kind of reaction, right? So that's part of why this, this, seemingly innocent item of clothing was packaged with so much meaning in the 1940s and why people reacted so viscerally to the presence of the zoot suit. And let me just add one other thing as I'm joining on. And again, you, you kind of have to appreciate this in the age of segregation. Here's the other thing that was pretty obvious to me is, you know, as I read through all the the newspapers, I, I read through Life magazine, right? And, and all the popular representations, even if you watch movies in the 1940s, right? If, if you came from outer space and you landed in Southern California and your only access to culture and life in the United States was through the newspapers and the magazines and the movies, you would have no idea that racialized people existed. You really would have no idea because racialized people if they were mentioned, they were mentioned only in the crime journals. If they were shown on screen, they were they were very tangent, tangential characters. And this was all part of the ethos of segregation. If, as, as a person of color, as a racialized individual, you were supposed to remain unseen and unheard in the public spaces of the country. And so to assert your presence in any, vis- any way, was to push at the norms of segregation. And the reason why I, I share all this with you is that the zoot suit was something you could not help but avoid. When you're, when you see young people walking down the street, they don't blend in. And on top of that, there's something about the zoot suit that seemed to empower a lot of young people. There were police reports, lots of police reports of zoot suited young people who refused to give up the sidewalk to white people. So in other words, this was part of the unwritten norms of segregation. If if I'm walking down the street as a young person of color, uh, part of the norms was is that I yield the sidewalk to a white person walking in my direction. Well, you have all these uh, police reports in the 1940s of people complaining to the police that zoot-suited young people refused to defer to white privilege. Now, they didn't put it in those terms. But there was something empowering about the zoot suit that kind of made these kids say, I'm here, you must notice me, and you must notice me on my own terms, right? And so that all factored into the scandal of the zoot suit itself. Back again after these messages. 
Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. I also host the number one sleep podcast in the world called Sleep Cove, where millions drift off to meditations, hypnosis and bedtime stories. We soon realised that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place. So we created Mysteries at Midnight, where you can listen to all new tales every week. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast app and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. So why don't you pick a story now? And can you guess the twist? The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906, when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Reva Steed's Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Reva Steed's The Audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. And we are back for a final time. Yeah, you mentioned in your book that these zoot suitors would sometimes lock arms let's say four abreast and just march down the sidewalk, sort of scooting people out of their way. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely true. And, you know, there was something terribly empowering for jazz fans, these young people who love jazz music, to put on this very distinctive garb. It gave them a sense of place and it gave them a sense of social power in a way that they did not experience otherwise. And for people who were terribly invested in holding on to the now and holding on to what is to have young people of color challenging the norms of racial privilege was terribly upsetting, terribly, terribly upsetting, especially in a period when everything's being thrown out the window in terms of just the norms of society. Mom is now working out of the house, you know, and part of the dominant norms of society is that moms are supposed to be at home. 
Um, and so there just, this was a, a time of profound social flux. And this is just another part of that social flux was the fact that you've got young people really challenging the boundaries of, of racialized privilege. And I'll just add one other thing as well. The thing about jazz culture is that jazz always privileged skill over color. And so jazz musicians, they were of all colors and all ethnicities. In fact, some of the early jazz musicians during this period, they were Jews. They were white Jews. And they're mixing it up on the stage. They're playing together with African-American jazz artists. And on the dance floor, people are mixing it up. It doesn't matter what your color is. What matters is how well you dance. And all of these things are an affront to the norms of racial privilege. That basically means you stay in your own corner and, and don't bother me in my corner, right? So jazz, again, it just – it. It, it challenged the norms of society in all sorts of ways that, that really upset people who wanted to hold on to, to, to tradition. Before we get to the Zoot Suit Riot, many, many months go by where tensions build between sailors and Zoot Suiters in a specific part of Los Angeles. Could you talk about how these hostilities kind of gathered steam up to the point of the riot? Sure. So, you know, again, in, in trying to figure out where does this riot begin, I was fortunate enough to come across uh, police arrest records and, and complaints as well. And I mean, it was it was really thanks to the foresight of the Sleepy Lagoon Defense Committee that somebody gathered these police reports and filed it away. And, and so it allowed me to come along decades later and piece together the growing conflicts on the street between local young people and sailors. And so, you know, again, to take you back to segregated Los Angeles in the 1940s, uh, in uh, just north of downtown, there's an area known as Chavez Ravine. And it's where uh, Dodger Stadium now now sits, for those who are familiar with uh, Los Angeles geography. Before that stadium was there, Chavez Ravine had this long history of a segregated area of Los Angeles. And and uh, it was actually colonized by, by Jewish settlers. And uh, because of segregation, uh, people of color weren't allowed to live with, with whites. And Jews uh, in the period of segregation were defined as non-whites. And so what happened was is that uh, as, as refugees from the, the uh, Mexican Revolution came into Los Angeles, they, they had to move into these non-white areas of town. And they began to uh, settle in the area that was known as Chavez Ravine. So what happens in 1940 is that, you know, because the war is, is on and the economy is changing and, and, the, and society and economy, they're moving towards uh, the war effort. Uh, the city of Los Angeles exercised, extra, exercised the right of eminent domain and they, they declared a part of Chavez Ravine. Uh, I forget what the, the exact legal term was, but they, they basically laid claim to part of, of Chavez Ravine. And on that part, they put an armory. And that armory was used for training of naval officers, radio men, for example. And so the reason why this is important is because in this, the middle of this segregated area of town, suddenly the state comes along or the city comes along, grabs a piece of land and on that land puts an all white facility, right? This is, again, you have to remember this is in the, the, the days when the military was segregated as well. And so now we've got this kind of recipe of disaster. 
is that you see what I'm saying is that you've got this segregated area of town, racialized minorities, the, the state in the form of the city of Los Angeles claims a part of their neighborhood, puts an all white facility there. And so anytime that that military men stationed at the what's known as the Naval Reserve Armory, anytime they were stationed there and they wanted to go downtown, they had to cut through these neighborhoods, uh, these segregated neighborhoods. Well, there's resentment there to begin with. And local kids begin to push back at these white uh, military men walking through their neighborhoods. Now, there were accounts that there were some military men that harassed local young women. And perhaps that's true. Um, I wouldn't doubt it. You know, men being men, uh, it wouldn't surprise me in the slightest that this happened. Uh, harassed in the sense that, hey, what are you doing tonight? You know, uh, let's go out. Let's party. Right. Um, you know, for conservative Mexican culture, this is this is an affront. This isn't something you do. And so so there are tensions that begin to build uh, between the local youths living in the neighborhoods between where the armory was situated and downtown Los Angeles. And so every time these these military men would walk through these neighborhoods, the the tension begins to build. And and from the police reports, at first the tension is verbal. Get out of our neighborhood, you know, you can't speak that way to my sister, that kind of stuff, right? And then the the language gets even more hostile. Uh swear words. Um and then uh as time progresses, uh, the 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 pushback becomes physical. And so what I was able to trace these police reports, there were over 80 police reports up until the outbreak of riot. You can trace this upswing of tensions on the street that start off verbal and then move to physical uh, to the extent that local kids are, are now attacking uh, military men as they're walking through these neighborhoods. So on the night uh, that the, the rioting first starts off, it starts off as a vigilante, vigilante action on the part of the military men who are stationed in the reserve armory, uh, some of their some of their uh, colleagues got beat up uh, by local youth. And uh, as as these things happen, I'm uh, what happened was that, you know, they went back to the armory. And, of course, the young men or the, the, the men stationed at the army gathered together en masse as, as a group. And they went storming out of the armory. And it was their objective to teach these civilian youths a lesson. And they began to beat up anyone they could find on the street. And as these things go, it spun out of control. I mean, so the, for the first night of riding, you can trace exactly the route of the riders. And it was this, it was in response to this, uh, two to three year period of tension on the streets. But then the ride spins out of control. So on subsequent nights, suddenly you have, you know, as word begins to spread through the military grapevine that, that, uh, fighting is going on, suddenly you have reports of people Coming from San Diego, the, the, where the Navy is stationed, the 11th um, Naval District in, Los, in, in San Diego, suddenly people are taking buses up to Los Angeles. In fact, there's one account. I don't know if it's true, but there's one account where military men from Las Vegas are taking the bus down to Los Angeles to get to mix it up and to defend their military buddies. Right. So my point is, is that suddenly you have military men from all around the Los Angeles area pouring in as um the, the week progresses looking for a fight and the thing just spins out of control. Military, you have, you have, um, uh, mobs of military men going into South Central Los Angeles, uh, which is have heavily African American. And you have 
mobs of military men going into East Los Angeles, which is heavily Mexican-American as well. And so suddenly this this riot takes on a very overtly racialized tone where the, the overwhelming majority of rioting military men are white and the overwhelming majority of victims are people of color, uh, depending on the neighborhood that, that uh, these groups grow into. So that's how the riot then progresses. Uh, and again, it was it was at first a response to this ongoing sequence of harassment that military men uh, were facing uh, as they went on on leave into downtown Los Angeles. And then the whole thing just spins out of riot, uh, out of control and it takes this very racialized overtone to it. And I think it's important to point out is that what these sailors were doing, and it was in evidence that first night of, of rioting, where, where they went into a movie theater and pulled out a bunch of 12, 13-year-old boys, is that they were stripping these guys of their suits and, and burning them. And that was a big part of this. You know, in fact, I would say it's the only part of it. Um, I'm glad you brought that up. And that was the really curious thing about this riot. So uh, to give you some context, 1943, there are other race riots going on in Los Angeles. Detroit was deadly. Um, there are riots going on in Newark as well. And what was really curious about the, the Los Angeles Zoot Suit Riot is that uh, there are no rapes reported in association with the rioting military men. There are no murders. Uh, there was one case that I found of, of someone being uh, wounded, a civilian being wounded rather grievously. But uh, otherwise, the focus of the rioting servicemen revolved around the destruction of the Zoot Suit. And there are lots of accounts where groups of servicemen, they would find a young person wearing a zoot suit. They would give them the chance, strip your suit off right now. If you don't, we're going to pull it off of you. And for those who refused, of course, they got beat up until they submitted. And then the, the zoot suit was pulled off of them. And then the zoot suit was destroyed. It was usually ripped up and usually burned, right? Um, in fact, there, there are lots of uh, – there were reports as well of, of kind of ingenious ways that the military men tried to uh, – tried to um, destroy the zoot suit. So that became one of my research questions. Like, why was this the focus of the riot, right? They, they weren't destroying property per se. In other words, they weren't destroying homes. They weren't destroying cars. You know, in the ways that we think about race riots today, if you think about the uprising and the, the, the aftermath of the Simi Valley verdict, uh, Rodney King, um, that's how we think of race riots, right? We think of neighborhoods being torched, businesses being trashed, right? None of that happened near the Zoot Suit Riot. The sole focus of this, 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 this energy of violence was on destroying the Zoot Suit. So that's one of my research questions about what, what gave the Zoot Suit such power and why was that the focus of the, the riot? And my ultimate thesis was, was that this was an effort to shore up the norms of racialized privilege that were being challenged by young people in Los Angeles across the board. And the Zoot Suit was a very convenient tool uh, to both express your difference with the norms of segregated America. In other words, deal with me on my own terms. This is me. This is who I am. Look at me. Notice me. Um, I have a place here, too. Right. This is this. These are all the messages that are being sent out by the by this article of clothing. And at the same time, for those who wanted to destroy that article of clothing, they wanted to destroy this this flagrant violation of the norms of segregation. Was the, the riot effective? 
I mean, did these young men keep wearing their zoot suits after this, or, or did the fashion just fade away on its own? You know, the fashion did fade away, but uh, I don't think it was because of the, resi- the, the riot. Um, you know, if you follow jazz at all, I mean, jazz, like all other art forms, you know, has its own life and, and own history and own progression as well. So, so jazz moved on from swing. And you kind of have to understand that the Zoot Suit was all part of swing jazz. And um, the style itself in the post-war period, you know, kind of a, as swing jazz became more mainstream. And, and it was appropriate. It just like all uh, street musical expressions eventually becomes appropriated by the music industry. And that's exactly what happened with, uh, with swing jazz. Um, it becomes appropriated by the music industry. And at that point, uh, jazz artists move on to different forms, different styles, and and kind of the excess and the celebration that went along with with swing jazz. Uh, jazz itself just moved on to a different different phase in a different place, and so the zoot suit uh, fell out of fashion. Uh, but I don't think it had anything to do with the riot. I think it just had a lot to do with um, just the progression of the cultural expression of jazz. So, what do you think changed in Los Angeles? in the aftermath of the riots? That's a very good question. I'm not sure that much changed. Um, very, very good question. Now, you know, I go in my book on the efforts of, of local activists to try and, and improve race relations. And I suppose if anything changed, it was that. It's, it's that the city of Los Angeles recognized that they needed to give voice to Mexican-American citizens and African-American citizens in the community, whereas previously they didn't do that. And so there were commissions created and there were opportunities by by some uh, community activists to have the mayor's ear and to work directly with the LAPD and the sheriff's office as well. And those channels didn't exist previously. And so if I were to if you were to take the long view of improving race relations, it was a fact that. Uh, those in political power recognized that they couldn't simply push racialized minorities into their own corner and ignore them, but they needed to deal with their issues and their concerns as well. Um, and so um, that's one of the changes that came about is because, is, as I would identify, is, is that the city and the state began to listen more to minority voices. Now, I, I would never say that, you know, Suddenly, flowers bloomed and, and everything was great after the ride. It wasn't that, but it's, it's a long, long process. Process, And I've, I've talked a, a couple of times about the age of segregation. We, you know, obviously, we don't live in that, that period now, at least in terms of legalized segregation. All of that was important with doing away uh, with legalized segregation, all of that. Um, in other words, uh, people in power recognizing that, that they needed to incorporate the voices and the participation of all citizens uh, in the city and in the state as well, regardless of color. So it, it, it was one of those small steps in a very, very long journey for us as, as a community, as a nation, to move away from these ideas about race and privilege. Was there a direct connection between the Sleepy Lagoon murder verdict and the Zoot Suit riot, or was it much more unconscious than that? You know, I think you phrased it very well. Is that there are actually uh, multiple narratives at work uh, during this this social moment, and that's exactly that was one of you know just as as I tried to tell the story. You know, one of the great challenges when you're putting together a book is like you know how do you 
how do you marshal the facts in a way that that someone can follow the story? And what was complicated here is that you have actually separate stories. The the verdict in the Sleepy Lagoon murder trial did not cause the Zoot Suit riot in the same way that the Simi Valley verdict caused the uprising in Los Angeles uh, with the Rodney King situation, right? It wasn't that direct connection. It was part of larger anxieties about changing social values, rapidly changing social values. And so when you read about uh, the, the, the press coverage, for example, about the Zoot Suit riot, it was all in the context of rebellious youth. And so for the writing servicemen, it makes sense that as they try to process, why are we being harassed by local civilians? Why are they harassing us when we are putting our lives on the line to defend this country? In fact, we may be dead in a couple of weeks. You know, why are we being treated this way? What surely factored in their minds was this is part of a generation of young people who are rebelling. And so um, this is this is how they tied to each other. It was part of what I talk about the discursive context of the discussion about young people uh, during the war period. In other words, it's the ways that people talked about the fears of young people growing up with uh, parental supervision, the ways that young people were challenging social norms and social boundaries and what that meant. It all factored in, in that larger narrative of, of youth and of social propriety. But it wasn't this direct one-to-one relationship. I'm so ap- appreciative of your time today. Where would you direct people who want to learn more about you and your work? <laughs> well, th- thank you for that. Um, so, um, you know, my, my professional webpage is at, at asu.edu. I don't, I don't have a, a personal uh, webpage that I, that I use. Um, so, uh, yeah, I would just direct people to my, my asu.edu just the directory. You can you can look me up, and I have my a web page there. I've got a quick question about your work on History Detectives. So a lot of my listeners are probably familiar with you on that show. Was there any particular case that was especially challenging or interesting to you? You know, actually, that's a very good, great question. In fact, I'll tell you um, kind of the nature of, of, of how the, the stories were, were produced and how they came about. So the stories were almost entirely viewer driven. So people contacted us with very interesting questions or artifacts that had stories and they wanted to know about every once in a while, we ourselves as, as, as co-hosts would say, Hey, this is a great storyline. Let's, let's follow this one up. In other words, we would bring something to it as well. So I had a few stories in there, but the reason why I'm telling you this is that um, you only saw the success stories on, on television. You, you didn't see the stories where we just hit dead ends um, and I, I encourage the producers all the time to, to at least have one story where we show the reality of research and you hit dead ends all the time in research. And I, I wanted to have at least one story where we went back to the viewer and said, I'm, I'm sorry. I've, I've looked at X, Y, and Z sources. I've overturned every stone that I can. There's nothing. I got nothing for you. Right. Um, but. The, the producers didn't agree with me. So you only see the success stories on, on sleepy, I'm sorry, on, on history detectives. And it makes us look like we're research geniuses. Uh, but there are lots of stories where there's just dead ends and they just never actually made it to the television screens screen. Uh, there were some stories that they took years to put together. 
just because they were so complicated. Um, other stories came came very quickly in terms of viewer submission, and we were able to find all the information we wanted, and it was able to to come to the screen on that that same season. You know, off the top of my head, though, I can't I can't remember. Uh, a story, and I have to think about that a little bit more. That that really took years to pull together, just because uh, it was so hard to find all the resources that we needed, all the pieces to fall into place. I just can't remember off the top of my head. I apologize for that, but I just just know that in the process of of doing this, uh, putting this show together, uh, we had lots of stories in the hopper, um, and it all depended on on whether the pieces were coming together or not. This has been great. Thanks so much for your time. Well, thank you for, again, thank you for your interest, and I appreciate this opportunity as well. So I'm um, very grateful. Again, this was Eduardo Pagan, and his book is called Murder at the Sleepy Lagoon, Zoot Suits, Race, and Riot in Wartime L.A. You've been listening to The Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobweb corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. Have you ever wondered how inbred the Habsburgs really were? What women in the past used for birth control? Or what Queen Victoria's nine children got up to? On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. Join me every Tuesday for History Tea Time, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.